My name is Leonidas, and this is Informed Dissent. What's up, guys? Welcome to episode 18 of Informed Dissent, the podcast where we push back on the culture of groupthink and challenge the narrative. I appreciate you tuning in to the first show of 2021. Need to say Happy New Year. Haven't had the chance to do that yet. Hope everybody's hanging in there so far. So we're only, what, three weeks into the year and the whole year is already off the rails. Joe Biden has been officially sworn in as president. And he's already doing stupid stuff, of course. And still nothing makes any sense. COVID, the election, the riots, the inauguration, it's just none of it's adding up. Something is off. To start off with, and I know people are probably tired of talking about it at this point, but I haven't done a podcast since it happened. So I just want to address really quickly the whole incident at the Capitol because, you know, a lot of it is still bugging me. I mean, supposedly pro-Trump protesters were somehow able to gain entry into a secure building, despite leadership being warned that there were groups planning to do this weeks in advance. Supposedly one of the most secure buildings in the world just had a massive security breakdown, and people who were unarmed, by the way, were able to gain access. And there's video of Capitol Police just letting people into the building, and and a lot of people just standing around and and taking selfies and standing within the velvet rope lines like it's like it's just a tour just very surreal for a supposed insurrection and there was video of that that viking guy i I don't know his name but him and a few of the other guys that he was with waltzing into the senate chamber and a police officer just politely walking around with them and occasionally asking them if if they could possibly leave i just what and then you have people in the crowd who are anti-trump agitators going undercover in trump gear and causing problems like a guy named john sullivan who is a blm antifa activist a known agitator who was seen meeting up with a journalist named jade sacker after getting inside and, and she's on camera, all giddy, saying, we did it, which is clearly suspect. And then he ends up being the one to film Ashley Babbitt being shot and killed. And that's not even the first time that he's had a front row seat to a fatal shooting at a riot, apparently. And speaking of Ashley Babbitt, you know, my prayers go out to her family and friends for peace and comfort. Just an awful situation, what happened to her. But, you know, if you, if you watch that video, the, the people that were there with her, nearby her, in the video, you can see that nobody by the door really reacts to the shot being fired at all. And I wondered why that is, because it had to be loud. It had to be, I mean, if, if firing a handgun in a closed area like that has to be loud. And what, what do people normally do when, when shots are fired in your direction? And they didn't react. They didn't do anything. That doesn't make sense. There's just, I don't know. There's just a lot of questions and that's not even nearly all the things that are off about that, but I don't want to spend this whole episode on it. And I don't want to jump full on the conspiracy theory bandwagon, but the whole thing just clearly does not add up. I mean, the, the fact that requests for more law enforcement backup was denied. I mean, there's just so much that doesn't make sense. 
And, and then you have the corporate media and the political left responding to this as if it were a 9-11 scale terror attack. And that's the worst part of it, right? I mean, I mean, several of them have referred to it as such, which is just patently absurd. But beyond that ridiculous, melodramatic hyperbole, the gaslighting and just complete distortion of reality has been insane. And it's like we're supposed to just completely forget about the endless BLM and Antifa riots from last year. Well, the, the Antifa riots still are still going on in Portland and Seattle, but all of that, just memory hold. The billions of dollars in damage and 30 plus lives lost to those riots, just gone. Like it never happened. And these people are losing their minds. And now people on the left are supporting censorship of conservatives and even calling for people to be arrested because they say we're terrorists and that our ideas are dangerous. Months upon months upon months of BLM and Antifa burning down buildings, burning down police stations, attacking police officers with bricks and frozen water bottles and whatever they could get their hands on, launching fireworks and other incendiary devices into federal buildings at police and at innocent civilians as they tried to break into those buildings, dragging people out of their cars and beating them, setting up autonomous zones in the middle of cities, killing people including a retired police chief named David Dorn and an eight-year-old little girl named Sakuria Turner. Now, all of a sudden, they're fainting in shock at the horror of political violence? But the Capitol is a sacred building, they said. <laughs> yeah, right. After George Floyd died, BLM rioted at the White House. At the White House. They clashed with police and tried to break the barrier. They attacked officers and set a bunch of stuff on fire, including the St. John's Church across the street. Trump had to be whisked away to an underground bunker for his safety. That was fine, though. Justified. Countless other riots across the country with people storming and occupying state houses have been happening for years. I mean, think back to the Kavnog fiasco. The Women's March people had an organized flood the Capitol event where they intended to break into the Capitol, disrupt the proceedings, and shut it down. That was their stated goal. They said it, out loud, explicitly. And there's plenty of video of them trying to break down doors, break into offices, accosting senators in the hallways and in the elevators, and taking over the Hart Building. Now all of a sudden there's a problem? Look, I don't condone what happened at the Capitol, okay? I, I think there are much smarter ways to go about it, and initiating any violence is never the answer. I only advocate for violence in cases of self-defense. But man, after nearly an entire year of the political left, including the media and political leadership, straight up supporting the violence of BLM and Antifa, you can spare me the sanctimonious pearl clutching. Supporting both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden while they fanned the flames of hate and supported those groups when they were wreaking havoc in those cities. Harris even leading a charge to bail rioters out of jail. And supporting violence when you believe the cause was just. And not just violence, but violence against innocent civilians. Violence that was called necessary in the voice of the unheard. Justified because people are angry and fed up. Now all of a sudden it's an issue? And beyond this obvious gaslighting with pretending like the 
perpetual riots last year never even happened, the left has decided to go ahead and play the race card as well and announce that everybody involved with what happened is a racist white supremacist. This is the narrative. The racial angle has been the most insufferable because literally none of it had anything to do with race. But they've managed to convince half the country that white supremacists, insurgents, are trying to overthrow the country and kill everyone. That sounds like I'm making that up, but people are actually saying this. Prominent people too, not just random Twitter trolls. AOC made a video where she said she thought she was going to die and that the Capitol was under siege by white supremacists. She even accused her fellow congressmen of being white supremacists and said that she was afraid that they might kill her. Elon Omar, Rashida Tlaib said the same. Pelosi, Schumer, Biden, Harris, all these people have echoed the same crap about the threat of white supremacy. Biden even said it in his inaugural address Wednesday. And they have the actual gall to accuse Trump supporters of living in delusion and propagating wild conspiracy theories after saying stuff like that. The invisible white supremacist boogeyman that could strike at any moment has become their staple for instilling fear and controlling the masses. And I, you know, I love how they denigrated the Capitol Police and then praised them like two seconds later, and nobody on the left seemed to even notice. You know, the narrative was that had it been black people storming the Capitol, they would have been killed in cold blood, which of course implies that the Capitol Police are practically KKK members primed and ready to slaughter black folks while treating white folks with kid gloves. That's the implication. I mean, there's no other way to read that, right? That is the only way such a statement could make sense. But then they immediately go to praising the police for their brave response, and they're leaving messages of of gratitude in the hallways for them. (laughs) It's just so disingenuous. That's what happens when you lie, though. It's hard to keep it all straight. But the obvious point to make here is that we don't even need that ridiculous hypothetical to imagine what it would have been like if black people had done something like this. I mean, my goodness, black people spent the entire year last year rioting and looting, and maybe one person was killed by police, but he was shooting at them. So the evidence says clearly that such a foolish assertion makes no sense. Governments all over the country bowed down and surrender and allowed black people to do whatever they wanted to do. And I already mentioned they tried to break through to the White House, prompting Trump to be taken to an underground bunker. Was anybody killed that day by police? No. You know who was killed by police during the Capitol riot, though? Ashley Babbitt, a white Trump supporter. So much for that narrative. But that didn't stop them from screaming racism. Facts are irrelevant. You know, we could say that things really would have been different if it were BLM. I think that's a correct statement. Because BLM protesters would not have been shot. They would have been welcomed with open arms. The media would have taken their side. And the police would have been the villains. Congress would have been said to have deserved it. Everyone would have taken a knee. It would have been called a historic moment as our country reckons with its racist past. 
We know this because that is exactly how it played out all last year, over and over and over again. But it doesn't matter. The truth isn't really the important part. They make everything about race because they know it works. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. And nobody's been able to effectively challenge it. All of these celebrities talking about crying, yes, actually crying because a black woman is now vice president. <laughs> talking about their kids can look up to her because she's black. <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of sense does that make? Clearly, you should look up to people because of their character, because of their accomplishments, because they're exemplary human beings, not because they have a certain amount of melanin. That's obviously ridiculous. Or at least it should be obvious. But this is always the game, isn't it? Race, 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 all day, every day, all the time. Why? Because it's emotional. That's why. And because it carries a certain moral authority that makes it difficult to challenge, especially for white people. It's all manipulation. They use it to manipulate people. See, these people have zero principles. They don't actually believe anything they say. People need to realize this. They, they don't believe in any of it. They don't believe that what happened at the Capitol was an insurrection or treason. They don't believe Trump was inciting violence or even that inciting violence is bad. They just don't believe it. Because they would do a complete 180 if it were BLM storming those halls and you know it. Everyone knows it. Democratic politicians could explicitly call for it and they would support it completely. See, they will abandon what they claim to believe so passionately in the very second, and I mean the very second, that they believe they can use it to manipulate others. And they do this with everything. Racism is only racism when they can use it as a weapon. When they engage in racially charged attacks against white people, or heck, even attacking black conservatives, it's ignored. Or worse, it's promoted. Me too. Believe all women. Yeah, that goes directly out the window when the person making the accusation is not of the correct socio-political leaning, or when the person being accused is. They'll go after and try to destroy women like Tara Reid and Juanita Broderick for making accusations of sexual assault. Why? Because they don't believe what they say. It's all manipulation. Election fraud is a huge example. My goodness, they spent three years on an investigation believing that the election was stolen from Hillary by the Russians. They even pushed claims of election fraud in the midterms and had all these concerns about the machines being hacked. And don't even get me started on Stacey Abrams. But the minute Trump supporters suggest there may be a problem, election fraud suddenly becomes impossible and challenging the election at all is an affront to democracy. They did nothing else but challenge the election results and spent Trump's entire presidency trying to remove him from office. But challenging the election results when they win is an affront to democracy? They supported political violence all year last year. They supported attacking police officers, screaming ACAB. They used to say that deploying military onto American streets was fascism. Remember that? Now that's apparently fine. No accusations of fascism to be seen. 
How about when painting a whole group of people as terrorists based on the actions of a few used to be bigotry when it was Muslims? Now it's all good when it's Trump supporters. No problem. It doesn't matter. They don't care. They have no principles. They do the exact same things they claim to abhor. And the only thing that determines what they believe in that moment is whether or not they think they can use it to manipulate others. And what they're doing with this whole white supremacy thing and elevating race identity above everything else is no different. It's manipulation. Michael Malice said on Twitter the other day that the fetishizing of black people by white urban liberals is problematic at best. And he's right about that. But I, I think it's less about black people and more about black victimhood. Because they fetishize black victimhood because of the moral authority that it grants them. It's like a religion, right? They, to them, it's like wearing a cross around their neck. And that's why they hate black conservatives who reject those victimhood narratives. They can't have people like me coming in and announcing that their God doesn't exist. You know, it takes away their moral authority that they've gained by clinging to black victimhood. And it takes away one of their primary means for manipulation. Therefore, it's vital that people like me are discredited and labeled a heretic. So they'll call me a race traitor, an Uncle Tom, someone who does not speak to the black experience. For all intents and purposes, I can no longer be black. And we've seen them even go so far as to announce that there is a such thing as multiracial whiteness. I wish that was a joke. And just think about that for a moment. And this was in the Washington Post, by the way. Multiracial whiteness. It's crazy. See, this is what I try to explain to people when they try to say, well, it's both sides. No, it's not. That both sides nonsense needs to die. Both sides do have crazy extremists. I acknowledge that. But there is a huge difference. The crazy extremists on the right are universally condemned. They're impotent with no cultural or, or political power. The crazy extremists on the left are embraced and mainstream. And they're everywhere. They're in our media. They're in our music, in our sports, in corporate America, in public schools, higher education, healthcare, research, advertising, and increasingly in government. Joe Biden has announced that he is dedicated to critical race theory. Do you understand how insane that theory is? If you don't, go listen to episode 11, where I talk quite a bit about it. And also check out Christopher Rufo and James Lindsay, who've been working hard against it, and they do a great job at breaking down how dangerous and damaging it is. But we have a president of the United States championing a theory that proclaims that all white people are racist and complicit in a system of white supremacy. Madness. It is not both sides. Not even close. The right is not calling for putting their political opponents into re-education camps. The left is. The right is not calling for censorship of left-leaning media outlets or left-leaning social media accounts. The left is. The right is not calling for putting people who disagree with them on lists so as to ostracize them from society. The left is is. The right is not supporting any form of violence in pursuit of political goals. The left is. We, we have people like Ben Rhodes 
calling for there to be a firm and brutal detox of so-called lies and hate from the entire right side of the aisle in America. And that it must be done through the use of national security and homeland security officials. You have General McChrystal directly comparing Trump voters to al-Qaeda in Iraq. You have John Brennan saying that Biden's intel people uh, need to be working to uncover the pro-Trump insurgency going after what he called religious extremists, authoritarians, fascists, bigots, racists, nativists, and even libertarians. <laughs> libertarians. And we've been called all those names before as Trump voters. So what's the criteria here? You have Andy McCabe saying that Trump supporters are like ISIS, making it clear that your own neighbors could be terrorists. And now Pelosi, among many other high-level Dems, and a lot of talking heads in the media have been pushing for something like a 9-11 commission to address this new homegrown terror threat. I don't want to hear that it's both sides because it absolutely is not. All this talk about unity. What I think they actually mean is that we can have unity, but only if you capitulate to leftist ideology. Otherwise, you're an enemy of the state. And they're making that clear. Which brings me to really the basic essence of what I wanted this episode to be about. And that's really this idea that unity is not possible. And don't get me wrong, unity is desirable and something we should strive for. But in a practical sense, I don't see how we can possibly unify with people who believe our very belief system is dangerous and akin to violence and that we need to be re-educated until we're cleansed of our wrong think or else be ostracized from society. People that call you terrorists, people that call you white supremacists, how do you unify with people who hate you? The answer is you can't. If they're going to go after people for thought crimes, and announce that conservative beliefs are the same as hate speech or the same as violence, then we have big problems and we're faced with a choice. Either capitulate or resist. Unity to the Democrats means capitulate. Bend the knee, kiss the ring, worship their gods. That is the only unity that they're interested in, I promise you. When Trump was elected in 2016, a resist movement began that focused itself on doing everything it could to derail his presidency and push back against everything he tried to do. It didn't really matter what it was. They protested everything. And I've pondered what the best way for conservatives and libertarians to resist this Biden admin might be. And I definitely oppose taking to the streets and acting like fools like the left did for years. I'd like to think we have more dignity and self-respect than that. And while it did mostly work for them, there's no possible way such shenanigans would work for us. The Capitol incident was a clear indication of that. There will be zero tolerance for anything that looks remotely like unrest from non-leftists. If anyone even gives them as much as a side-eye, they're going to be screaming insurrection. And you know it. So honestly, the way I think this gets fixed is just going our separate ways. Now, I know not everyone will agree with that, but I think our country is just too big 
And our government is definitely too invasive and too corrupt, irreparably so. I just think it's irredeemable beyond divine intervention. I think we're too polarized. We have nothing in common, no common belief system, no shared ideals, no common vision. We don't even share a basic interpretation of the Constitution or the meaning of liberty or even what it means to be an American. None. I mean, what exactly do we agree on? This is the problem. And the fact that people in California feel entitled to determine how people in Ohio live their lives is just indicative of the madness we find ourselves in. Not to mention our federal government completely wasting our tax dollars on stupid nonsense, sending it off to foreign countries, completely ignoring their constituents. People are fed up. And I felt like we've been heading toward a civil war for a while now. And now with big tech blatantly going after conservatives, those alarm bells are screaming. And the question is, how can we possibly continue to coexist like this? It would all be solved if we just learned how to leave each other alone. If we just decided that individual liberty was the most important aspect of our, of our society and prioritized it above all else, we wouldn't be having these issues. At least not at this scale. But that isn't the case. There's a large segment of our country that believes that they know best, and not only that they know best, but that they should be given control over how other people live their lives that they must use the government to force others to do what they want them to do. And that's really the crux of the issue. The government is far too large and far too powerful, which means it can and will be used as a weapon. And what has happened is that instead of operating as a means by which we can engage in voluntary cooperation, it's become a powerful weapon to be wielded by one gang against another. And I think I mentioned this before in an earlier episode, but what happens and what is happening is that both sides fight and desperately struggle, ripping each other to pieces to try to get control of this weapon so that they can, number one, prevent the other side from doing what they perceive would be unimaginable damage. And number two, use that power to force their own ideology on those who previously refused to embrace it. This is not what the purpose of government is supposed to be. Yet here we are. And there's no real way out of it except for succession or civil war. Of course, we could try to get politicians to write legislation and vote to reduce the size and scope of the federal government. But that's like expecting the dragon to slay itself. Never going to happen. And definitely not this administration that's going to seek to expand the federal government's power as much as possible. So I, I mean, I don't really know what the actual solution is. I'm not pretending to have all the answers. But I know that the problem is the government is too big and has way too much power. That is the problem. So the obvious solution to that is not to fight over which ideological gang gets to wield that power over others, but to actually unload the gun, take away the power, which takes away the incentive to seek it and takes away the ability to use it against others. So how do we do that? 
Like I said, getting politicians to give that up willingly is a pipe dream. The only reason most of those people are in office is because they have the desire to seek power. And we're stuck with this perpetual tragic paradox where the people who end up running for office and getting into office are people who should be nowhere near power. And the people who refuse to run are the people who should. Because as many intelligent people have pointed out in the past, the best person to put into a position of power is a person who has no desire to seek it. People who don't want it. People who have no intention of trying to rule over others are the people who are best suited to be given power. If only we could figure out who those people are and hand them the reins. But alas, in American government, we are saturated with people who are drunk on power and obsessed with seeking it and keeping it. We've made it a career pursuit, a lifelong career pursuit. And that weapon continues to grow and become more and more dangerous. And with the left now at the helm, that is especially apparent. I mean, you guys know that I'm more of a libertarian in my beliefs because I believe that people know what's best for themselves and that ethically people should be allowed to decide what is best for themselves, no matter what someone else thinks. Forcing people to do what you think is best or what you think is benevolent or good or whatever it might be, the idea that you should have the power over other people is just incredibly evil. What makes you think that you should be allowed to control how other people live? This idea of the greater good is just atrocious. All throughout history, we've seen horrific things done in the name of the greater good. Because people began believing that they knew best and that they should be able to have power over other people's lives in order to craft some just out of reach utopia. It's maddening to me, that people seem to never learn this lesson. And lately I've been reminded of a C.S. Lewis quote from his essays on theology, and I'll read it for you. I'm sure most of you have heard it before, but it's very appropriate to our current political climate. And he said, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make a hell of earth. This very kindness stings with intolerable insult. To be cured against one's will and cured of states which we may not regard as disease is to be put on a level of those who have not yet reached the age of reason or those who never will. To be classed with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. And he's right. So... I do wonder what the path forward should be. I'm not convinced we can continue to coexist. You already have attempts among prominent Democrats to label all Trump supporters as terrorists or potential terrorists, as I mentioned before. 
They're beginning to introduce bills into Congress, like this House Resolution 350, which states that the bill is to authorize dedicated domestic terrorism offices within the DHS, the DOJ, and the FBI to analyze and monitor domestic terrorist activity and require the federal government to take steps to prevent domestic terrorism. And like I said, that translates into anyone engaging in wrong think. And I'm not being hyperbolic here. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, they're, they're calling us terrorists and extremists already. And there are people from the New York Times and Washington Post openly calling for de-radicalization of Trump supporters. This is happening on a wide scale among prominent Democrats. So where does this end? These people are so convinced that they are morally superior and morally righteous and that they must be given the power of the government to do whatever they wish and force others to think like they do. How does that end? Like I said, it ends with either capitulation or civil war. So I don't know. I, I'm sure some will think that I'm being overly dramatic here. But look, many, many on the left, and not just random people, but people in power have stated clearly what their intentions are. So how is that being hyperbolic when they're saying it out loud? And as the saying goes, when people show you who they are, believe them. And I do. I believe them. They're saying it explicitly. And like I said, I don't think that we can coexist anymore. We need to figure out a way to make this work. And I view it like a relationship, you know, like, like a marriage. And if counseling doesn't work, if our differences are irreconcilable, then we have to get a divorce. And speaking of relationships, another thing about the left is that they are behaving exactly like an abuser. And I mean exactly. I had a friend sent me a graphic, uh, Joe Sanders, which I posted the other day from the Workplace Mental Health Institute. And it was 15 signs that you might be in an abusive relationship. And I'm just going to read these to you, see if they sound familiar. So the signs are these. They stop you from seeing your friends and family. They won't let you go out without permission. They tell you what to wear, monitor your phone and emails, controls the finances or won't let you work, controls what you read, watch, and say, monitors everything you do, punishes you for breaking the rules, but the rules keep changing, tells you it's for your own good, And that they know better. Doesn't allow you to question it. Tells you that you're crazy and no one agrees with you. Calls you names or shames you for being stupid or selfish. Gaslights you, challenging your memory of events, making you doubt yourself. Dismisses your opinions and plays the victim. If things go wrong, it's all your fault. Well, according to the Workplace Mental Health Institute, we are currently in an abusive relationship with the political left. And I say we need a divorce. Otherwise, we continue to fight, continue to beat the crap out of each other, continue to be miserable with each other, when we could just amicably split and go our own way and live our own lives. 
cut the cord before it becomes really bad. And yes, a divorce is hard. It's uncertain. There's a lot of details to work out. And there's a lot of pain. It's unpleasant. Nobody really wants the divorce. Nobody dreams about it. And it's difficult when you've invested so much effort and so much time into making the relationship work. And then it doesn't. So now you're dealing with a sunk cost fallacy. But you can't let that drag you down. You can't fall victim to the irrational thinking that you need to stay in a bad relationship because you've invested too much into it already. And I get it. I love this country. I cherish its history. I understand the stigma around the Confederacy's attempt to succeed and the bad feelings around essentially undoing what the first civil war was fought to prevent. I understand all of that. But I also understand that this, what we have going on right now, cannot continue. I want to leave this world better for my children. Okay? I don't want my kids to grow up in this. And if that means America has to break up, then I'm all for it. But I think that we need to at least attempt to find an amicable solution. If we can't find common ground, if we can't come together and actually find real unity, we need to find a solution before things get bad. We can't keep going back and forth fighting each other like this. It's gone well beyond mere partisan differences. And given the left's desire for control and the general resistance to compromise, the only amicable solution I can think of is succession. And I don't mean left and right either, because that's impossible. And it's not smart anyway. Left and right do need each other. That push and pull is vital. We need that. But what I'm talking about is we need a much smaller government and we need much less extremism. We need to return to a respect for individual liberty. And I think we can do that through succession. I, Texas seems best equipped to be the first to do it. So maybe Texas goes, then Florida, the whole South. I'd like to see Ohio go, the Dakotas. I don't know. But we need to talk about it. And I think we need to really take it seriously. I just think our country's too big and our government's too big. And it's time we win our own separate ways. We need a divorce. Thanks for listening. I'm Leonidas, and this has been Informed Dissent. If you would like to help support the show through donation, you can do so at donorbox.org slash Leonidas. D-O-N-O-R-B-O-X dot org slash Leonidas. I really appreciate that. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe, give it a five-star rating, share with your friends. Also, follow me on social media at Leonidas Johnson. And check out my website at LeonidasJohnson.com. And always remember, do your own research, challenge everything. Don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe. We'll see you next week. God bless. God bless.